Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash ACAST. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Of course, poetry has so much nuance, but I think there's something about the pressure of the line break that really kind of heightens uh, whatever you're trying to say. Uh, into something that's operatic. And I didn't want to speak in a way that was operatic. I wanted to just have a conversation. And I wanted to talk instead of sing. So that was why I turned to prose. This is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they made afterward. I'm Jordan Kistner. This is Thresholds. Something to note about this season of Thresholds is that all of the audio recordings you're going to hear were made in people's homes, often on their cell phones, in order to keep us all socially distant. And what that means is that occasionally you'll hear a slightly diminished sound quality or random life things happening in the background, a car backfiring, a phone ringing, a dog walking into the room, my dog walking into the room. Um, and we hope that you will be generous and bear with us on that. Hi, everyone. This is Jordan. First order of business this week is to thank you for your mail. I had mentioned a couple weeks ago that you could write us emails through our website, thisistthresholds.com. And some of you did, and it was just the coolest thing to get your notes, uh, your requests for new guests, your impressions about how this interview series has been factoring into your life in the last few months. It was beautiful, like so beautiful to get your notes. And I wanted to thank you for that and also let anyone who doesn't know, know that you can send us a note through thisistthresholds.com and we love hearing from you. 
This week, I'm so excited to introduce an interview with Kathy Park Hong, the poet, essayist, artist. Her poetry collections include Engine Empire, Dance Dance Revolution, and Translating Moam. She is the winner and recipient of a ton of prizes and honors like the Guggenheim Fellowship, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. She's also the poetry editor at The New Republic. And most recently, she has published an incredible book of seven essays called Minor Feelings that has deservedly gotten a ton of attention and praise in the past several months. Um, It's a collection that investigates her experiences and identity as an American, as an artist, as a Korean-American woman who grew up in Koreatown in Los Angeles. Um, It's about what she calls minor feelings, which she defines as the racialized range of emotions that are negative, dysphoric, and therefore untelegenic, built from the sediments of everyday racial experience and the irritant of having one's perception of reality constantly questioned or dismissed. In an interview with Guernica, she said that writing this book was like trying to give a language to these internalized feelings that are not in the lexicon of American experiences. And reading the book, it really does feel like you're watching someone write their way into new language. I was so thrilled to get to speak to her and now to share it with you. I started writing prose, actually, or really seriously started writing prose when I was pregnant. And I think it was uh, becoming a mother uh, that really kind of uh, probably like brought some urgency uh, to the book. Like I, I think, you know, before I was uh, before, before I came, became a mother, I, I was, you know, I always thought of myself as, uh, someone who, uh, kind of was an outlier or someone kind of in the margins or someone who was, who just didn't kind of follow any kind of demographic. And I kind of liked, I think I always sort of embraced that sort of misfit role, you know, uh, rather than, um, you know, seeing it as a a kind of point of crisis or anxiety. That, that was that too, but it was also, I thought, because I didn't really kind of belong in any kind of demographic. I also enjoyed that sort of misfit role, but, uh, you know, being a mom, mom, it really kind of affixes you um, into a demographic. And, um, of course, you know, it's not like I wasn't aware of my Asian American identity before, but, um, I thought about it in a new way, a different way. I also thought about what my role was as a woman. Um, I think like before it was just very straight, you know, I think I have as as many people do have kind of, uh, not exactly a fraught relationship with gender, but just, I, I, I never really cared to, I mean, I'm a total feminist, but I didn't really think of myself as, you know, um, I always thought of myself as more androgynous than, uh, um, than like a woman, you know? And, but then I guess I, uh, after I became a mother, I started thinking about like my role as a woman, as an Asian American 
as an Asian American woman, as a citizen in this country. And it was the first time that I really realized that I had to be some kind of role model and, um, and that I was really uh, in a position of authority and a position of power because I was a mother who was influencing another uh, person's life. And um, that really changed my writing. You know, I, uh, I think before I was really uh, much more interested in um, play and experimentation. And um, I didn't care if my uh, uh, language was decipherable. But I think after I had my daughter, I was like, I, I really wanted, um, of course, I always wanted to say so, um, something to prove a point when I was a poet, but I just, I just felt that I had a tremendous responsibility uh, to almost in a pragmatic way to make the world a better place, you know, um, for my daughter. I know that sounds so cheesy, but that's just how I felt at the time. So I would, I would guess that was the threshold. Yeah. I don't think that sounds cheesy at all. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people experience that. I, Mm -hmm. did that come on all at once? Was there one moment when you were with your daughter and you thought, oh shit, like I need to do, I need to do this differently or I need to sort of see myself differently or did it come on slowly? Uh, no, it wasn't like this, uh, blinding revelation I had. I mean, I had the kind of seeds of this book were in my mind, you know, um, for years and years. I mean, I, I I write about it in the book. Like I was, thinking about kind of ways, my approach is to kind of really directly talk, tackle race um, when I watched Richard Pryor. Um, and that was way before I was pregnant. Uh, but I think, you know, I had all of these like kind of fragments of um, ideas and what I wanted to do, but it didn't really cohere, I, I think, until I was like, you know, eight months pregnant. You know, and um, and then, you know, as many mothers will tell you, you know, when um, your baby is born, you have another kind of existential crisis that you're never going to write again. And um, that's it. And um, and I also, you know, when I say I was like trapped in a demographic, I also felt kind of trapped in my body. I was like, okay, I want to. move beyond this. But then I kind of found my uh, groove again um, when she got a little bit older. And then I started uh, really working on the book. It really does. Um, so I would say it was like I had different moments of uh, revelation um, as I was working on this book. You know, it's funny. It's funny. Like I've seen minor feelings a lot in these kind of anti-racist book lists. Um, you know, alongside such, you know, uh, illustrious yeah, writers like Ibram Kendi and so forth. And I I wasn't really thinking or perceiving anti, uh, you know, minor feelings as like initially as like a anti-racist handbook. You know, um, when I first started working on it, it was not even going to be about um, Asian American identity. I was just going to, you know, I mean, it was, but I was going to be, I was going to write about like, just the book was more of a portrait of an artist 
using my personal stories, but it was more, I think it was a little bit the, um, arguments were a little bit narrower because I was going to write about uh, the kind of institutional racism in the arts and poetry and literature and so forth. So it was a little bit, it was just narrower. And then uh, when Trump became, uh, got elected, I, I kind of had sort of this crisis, like how is this book relevant or going to be relevant um, to this time period? And I realized that I had to, kind of broaden my scope, broaden my, um, uh, broaden my subject as well as, uh, make the book even more vulnerable. You know, I think before I was thinking of it as, uh, more of a, like critical, even theoretical essays. And, um, I wanted to, I wanted the book after Trump got elected to reach a broader audience, you know, um, a broader audience being, you know, um, Asian Americans and other, uh, BIPOC uh, people because I thought um, I wanted it to, I wanted others to read it so they felt less alone. Um, I have this like um, anecdote in this, in the book where right after Trump's election, I was, you know, right after Trump's election, I was in Western Michigan. I was in Kalamazoo and I was really kind of skeptical, worried being there because, you know, Michigan went to Trump and, you know, they were like uh, handwritten for Trump signs. And it just seemed like a really ominous place. Uh, but, you know, it's of course with media and everything, it's like we sort of perceive other, you know, states as like the en- enemy territory when in fact, when I actually went to the, uh, got to the auditorium, um, the audience was uh, racially mixed and there was a lot of, um, and they were, everyone was just upset, just really upset. Uh, and they were raw and um, their grief was pretty raw. And so I was surprised and I read um, uh, actually a very early draft of this essay And um, there are some students who came afterwards, and one of them was a Korean-American student. um, And she was, I'm sure there are just very, very few Korean-Americans in Michigan, in um, Kalamazoo. And she was just talking about how isolated she felt and how she had no guidance. And, you know, this is before COVID, so she said, I was wondering if I could give you a hug. And I said, sure. And then, um, you know, uh, and she starts sobbing. And I think that was, I think that was, uh, you know, that was perhaps another smaller uh, scale threshold (laughs) experience where I just really, I guess I just wanted to write a book that made people like her feel less alone, you know? And um, that was really important to me. Um, and I guess before I wasn't thinking of the book that way, I think I was kind of intellectualizing it, the project more. Whereas after Trump got elected, I was like, I need for others to feel less alone. And then I want people to mobilize and revolt. (laughs) I mean, that's more (laughs) ambitious, you know, that's more ambitious, but you know, I think step by step, (laughs) this is one step. Thank you.
it sounds a little bit like as you're tracing these these three or four smaller thresholds, like what you're describing is this movement from, how do I say this? This process of recognizing that your body and your identity and who you are, um, it's, it's meaning, it's how it matters has resonances that start to get broader and broader and broader. So there's your influence and your power, the power of who you are with your daughter. And then thinking about writing to the girl in Michigan and like the, that your, what you have to say about your own minor feelings, um, and your subjecthood starts to feel like it wants to reach out farther and, and farther. Is that fair? I mean, I, I get, I like to, again, to like bring up another uh, kind of idea in the book, like, uh, I don't know if this is quite answering your question, but I, you know, I talk about um, the single story, which is, uh, you know, which is an idea that was kind of coined by uh, Chimamande uh, Adichie and um, Matthew Salsies also talks about it as well, where um, we have been, as Americans, we have been sort of conditioned to, you know, to kind of uh, read and digest and understand and consider timeless and universal one kind of story, right? And that kind of story tends to be uh, white, male, heteronormative. Uh, and there's a certain kind of language and format that fits fits it as well. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing now is this kind of, uh, uh, kind of um, shattering of that single story, as you will, uh, that's happening. And, um, you know, right now, for instance, uh, there are, uh, in literature, there's, in writing, in literature at least, there's like a lot of Black writers who are deservedly, especially Black women who are deservedly being celebrated. But even when I was like working on this book a few years ago, it wasn't, and the publishing company was still having, was starting to have its reckoning and was starting to think about how they should diversify their voices, diversify their book lists and so forth. But it wasn't, it wasn't as kind of as, as intense as it is now. And so I, I was, I, I think I was, um, before I was more cowed by the single story. I was like, this is what people want to read. This is what people care about. No one wants to read my experience, my story, because no one's going to relate to it, you know? And, um, I, and it really also, I think it took being unfortunate. And this is what I sort of grieve. I was like, I wish I felt this way like when I was 20, you know, or when I was 16 or, you know, it took a long time for me to really uh, feel emboldened and entitled to kind of not even tell my story, uh, you know, but, you know, tell the story in the way that I wanted it to and realizing actually the way I perceive the world and the way I perceive my identity is, um, you know, is actually very, feels very true, will feel very true to many, many other people. 
and um, and I'm going to amplify. I'm going to amplify it as loudly as possible. And um, you know, when the book came out, I have been um, really moved and touched by the number of readers who have come up to me. Many of them Asian American, um, who said I've never felt seen. I felt, you know, it's all, it's a say, I've been hearing that all the time. Like I feel seen, I feel seen. And, um, it's, it's fascinating. It's like, I think that when you're not, if you're part of the majority, um, you got, I guess you just take that for granted, you know, like just being seen. Yeah. I, I don't even know. It's like what that, you know, I don't even know if people would, uh, someone who's like, who feels seen all the time would even really kind of viscerally understand it. It's like someone who's deaf and you explain to a person, okay, this is what it's, what well, maybe, I mean, it's a facile analogy and, you know, but it's like, you know, and saying, telling them what sound is like, it's just, it's a kind of like, you know, it's like kind of a death of a million cuts where you're just, there's nothing that kind of uh, just is reflecting back your experience and your kind of psychological state. And then when you actually come across it, um, there's such a rush of relief and validation. Or it's like, for instance, it's like, um, um, you know, or just like, you know, what you're going through, what we're going through in the pandemic and feeling this kind of um, um, anxiety and melancholy if you only felt that yourself um, and didn't share it with anyone else, you'd feel like even crazier, right? Like, cause there's no one else to share it with. But then once you share it with another person, I'm feeling really lonely and I feel like I'm going crazy. Um, it's, it's, sh- it's shared and you realize, and then you realize, oh, this is not my problem. This is an externalized problem. This is a problem that everyone shares and that this and it there has to be a solution for that. And I think what that's what I'm trying to and that's what's remarkable about finally feeling seen is it's not just a recognition. It's like knowing that it's not just isolated to you. It's not like your own alienation that you have to just deal with. It's something that everyone that many, many people feel. And then uh, what comes next is anger and rage that nothing has been done. And then hopefully after that is uh, some kind of uh, seeking uh, need to change that uh, through equity, structural equity or so, and so forth. But I think that was why I, I, but I thought like, you know, there are a lot of books that write about like anti-Asian. I mean, not actually there isn't, I mean, there is, but there needs to be more, but I think there are a lot of books that talk about like racism in a sociological way or a theoretical way. Um, but I really thought that it was really important to talk about it from a more personal and emotional standpoint, um, in particular anti-Asian racism, because people, you first have to, you have to feel it before you you know, I, I have read, I've read tons of books, novels and essays and so forth, where, uh, where they talk about being, um, the condition of being invisible or the lack of representation or, uh, the stereotypes of yellow peril. And those are just all words because you don't, they're just words because they've been used so many times. Um, 
you know, Audrey Lord's wait, was that like Audrey Lord quote that uh, there are no new uh, stories or only new ways to make the stories felt. And it's the same thing with truth, you know, um, <clears throat> there are no new truths. Uh, well, there are new, some new truths, but a lot of times there are no new truths. There are only new ways of making these truths felt. And that's what, that's what I was trying to do with the book is trying to find new ways to make these truths that have been, um, written about and talked about for a long time felt. Something I wanted to ask you that you just touched on a little bit is mm-hmm. the way that you arrived at the form of the book. You used the word or the phrase modular essay to describe mm-hmm. how you're writing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted especially to ask you about that because it seems so central to the kind of like de- um, like decolonizing the narrative away from the, the one story, the one kind of story, the white, cis, het male patriarchal literary form that that so dominates the way that Americans get to write their own stories or feel seen in them. And so I I wondered how you arrived at the the process of the form of your book. Rather, I guess I would say, how did you arrive at the form of your book as this mm-hmm. thing that was also trying to enact this this politics that you were putting into a story? Uh, well, I, I would say that, first of all, the modular essay is not anything new. I mean, there have been a ton of writers who have written away, it written in that way from like, like Roland Barthes to, you know, um, Hilton Owls, you know, Maggie Nelson is someone who's cited often. Um, and I would say, though, that, like, you know, I think uh, one uh, commonality that some of these writers have uh, is that they come from poetry or they at least have an appreciation of poetry. Uh, another writer would be, say, uh, Wayne Kostenbaum. Um, and I think what... Uh, and so... And I, I always urge fiction writers or uh, journalists, students to take poetry because you have different ways of, I think you have just, I think you have just different ways of manipulating narrative, you know, because you're, uh, because poetry shows you all these different entry points into it. And um, for me, because I came from poetry, I never took uh, a nonfiction class, never taught it, especially, um, I almost was like treating these essays like poems, you know, where I was thinking about, um, or prose poems. I mean, I, I would like to see an essay about, uh, the way pro- prose poetry has completely transformed American literature, you know, and how it's kind of, call it, you talk about decolonization, how it's like also just decolonized, uh, fiction and nonfiction and so forth. But I, I think, you know, so I would just like kind of write a scene, um, almost like I was writing a prose poem um, or even an idea or a description, or when I was like writing a description or an analysis of another, of a painting, you know, I would 
approach it like a poet, like a poet writing what you call an ekphrastic poem. An ekphrastic poet poem is someone who is a poem that is uh, is about another work of art. And I would sort of so that there's the language is crafted, and then there was also a musicality to it and its own kind of pacing within each paragraph unit. So each paragraph was like a stanza, you know, and I was, um, and for me, ordering the essay wasn't, didn't fulfill some, you know, uh, Hegelian model or anything like that. It was just, uh, it was just, I just, you know, it was almost like tonal, you know, and it was more, the through lines were kind of based on recurring images and words and ideas and so forth. And it was very important for me to kind of, um, kind of nest those, nest those words throughout the book so that there was also this continuity. Um, so I think it was like, you know, it was natural for me because I was a poet and I don't think I could write that kind of uh, standard linear essay. I mean, I can if I was assigned to do it, but I wouldn't want to. Um, I was read Jane, um, uh, Jane Allison wrote a really great essay book of uh, book of essays. Shoot. What was it called? But she talks about different narrative modes and she, um, so I wish I remember that I was terrible with titles. And she was like, the kind of typical linear narrative is always follows the man climaxing. And it's like, well, I'm not really into writing a, a, a narrative of the man climaxing over and over again. Um, you know, so that was, that was that. And also I was thinking of the modular essay because I couldn't approach the Asian American ad directly. You know, I had to kind of write around it you know, take up the subject and drop it, take up the subject and drop it, you know, huh? I just said, why? Oh, because I, it's such a, first of all, it's like, uh, it's such a uh, mono, I mean, it's such a abstract identity that hasn't really been, um, it's almost like a, it's a label that hasn't really been scrutinized enough and interrogated enough and embraced enough. And um, there's no musculature around it. You know, people, when people, even like Asian Americans will say that there's something very wooden and stiff and um, uh, there, there's a hesitance to kind of talk about Asian American identity because it's such a monolith. And I thought of it the same way. I think the fear was uh, writing this book was that I would try to, I would give some kind of prescriptive definition of what Asian American identity is. And I was like, I can't do that. I just have to write about it from my perspective. Um, and I, I just have to write about it from my perspective, uh, my uh, my own um belief system and my own kind of life experience that uh, both kind of conforms and sort of rejects uh, uh, what the Asian American identity is perceived as. And, you know, I think with this book, it's more me. It's not just, again, it's not just about me being Asian American. It's about me being a woman. It's me being a mother. It's me being a daughter. It's me being uh, American uh, citizen. And uh, because I was kind of uh, exploring all of these different roles, it was very important for me that the 
essay was capacious. You know, I call, I've said in the past that I call the essay, the way I approach the essay was that it's like, it's like a coalition of genres. You know, it can encompass anything, you know, it could be poetic, it could be expository. Um, and, you know, earlier iterations of this book was not even in the essay form. It was first a book of poems and then it became, and then it was like a failed novel. I mean, I didn't get past the first chapter. So, but, and then all of those failures just ended up in this book, you know? So it's sort of this kind of, the essay is sort of this big baggy form that kind of took on all of these different uh, other ghosts of books, <laughs> book projects. When did you start writing nonfiction and why did you make that leap? Um, I was actually, I don't know if you would call journalism nonfiction, but, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I did I did have journalist experience. I was working for the Village Voice. I was a fact checker there, but I was also had the opportunity to write lots of articles for them. So, uh, and um, and I got some. So I got some experience reporting and how um, an article is supposed to um, how to construct an article. Um, and I was also in Korea for a year in um, China, uh, and I was doing some um, reporting there. I was writing a lot about um, uh, the North Korea, the uh, humanitarian crisis there. So, I mean, I would say that that was when I kind of really started writing. That was when I started wrote nonfiction, and then I abandoned it Um for poetry, you know, I went to grad school, I went to Iowa, um, and, um, and then eventually I started teaching. I was, I don't know, I, I think like when you're a poet, you're just asked to write these, um, reviews and, you know, um, thought pieces. And so I would just do it grudgingly, not wanting to and a lot of these uh, kind of these criticism, the criticism ended up being very dry and jargony. And, um, you know, I, it was as if I was writing it to repel people from reading the essays. And then, um, and then uh, you know, then there were a couple essays where it's like, no, I'm going to write it as if, you know, I just, I just want to cut through so much of the bullshit about poetry and I've had enough. And I'm just going to say what's on my mind, you know. Uh, maybe before I was a little bit scared of uh, criticism in that I was scared of really telling the truth, you know, like I felt. And I think this is because of me, uh, because of how I was taught, you know, that there was almost a deference to kind of theoretical language. And then I was just like, this is, it's not it's not how I want to write. So, I mean, I wrote, like I wrote this one essay called Delusions of Whiteness in the Avant-Garde that was published in this journal, Lana Turner, that was also, that actually got a, a huge readership. And, you know, I was, and I was just, I, I guess I felt a little bit more confident after that. And I was like, well, I'm just gonna continue doing this. I'm going to just write, essays, if I'm going to turn to the essays, because I need to cut through the bullshit and um, say what's not being said. So that was my approach to minor feelings as well. Was that around the time 
that you were pregnant and becoming a mother. I, th- I think I remember at the beginning of this conversation, you said that that was those things, those transitions happened at about the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, yeah, I guess so. Uh, like I wrote, when I wrote delusions, it was when I was pregnant. Um, I think that was another thing. Like I was pregnant. I had no, I couldn't write poetry. I tried. It was really hard. And I don't know if it was a progesterone in my body or what. And so it was much easier to, you also have time is also an issue. You just have a lot less time, you know, and it's much easier to kind of bang out sentences rather than uh, painfully kind of, uh, just delete and type and delete and type words, you know? Um, and I just, it was just, for me, it just made more sense to just write an essay. It was just, okay, I wrote this, it's done. I'll, um, submit it, email it, and I don't have to think about it. You know, whereas if I was writing poetry, I'd have all of these half-finished poems just, haunting me wherever I went. It's like impossible for me. It's really hard to finish a poem. Um, and so I think, yeah, it also, I think, you know, I think it had to do with being, uh, it all came together, I guess, when I was, when I became pregnant. Um, and I also, I, I think, you know, the difference between essays and fiction and poetry, uh, very kind of traditional, uh, difference is that with an essay, I, when I'm as a reader, I go to the essay cause I want, and I, I have questions that I want answered. Uh, whereas for fiction and poetry, it's not, you don't have that attitude. You don't have this like, okay, I have these questions and I want to know more about it and I want it answered. It's more about either, um, it's, it's a form of po- fiction is more of an escape, an escapism or kind of this kind of project where you want to em- empathize with someone outside of you or it's like a, a or fiction is more about friendship like you want to it's be, unfortunately it's becoming more and more like friendship where people are like I just want to hang out with someone I like so I'm going to read this novel you know and I think unfortunately that's why uh there's less this appetite for unlikable characters whereas like for essays you turn to essays for answers and I was I I, I had questions that I want answered and I wanted to, and that's why I started writing these essays. And, um, and um, you have to, sometimes you have to answer it yourself and then you just end up with more questions. <laughs> what does it feel like to have written from questions that there were no, you know, no books that had answered them for you? And so you said about writing that book for yourself and now you're the person who wrote the book that's answering those questions for other people. You know, like you you were saying that you are hearing from all these people, especially Asian American readers, if we're going to use that sort of overly wooden, as you said, term, or overly capacious maybe term, that they feel seen now because you've done some writing that answers some of their questions. What is that? Does that, how does that feel? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm grateful and um, that it's filled for some reader, readers. It's kind of uh, uh, filled that space, uh, that gap, that absence. You know, um, I, I'm really happy to have done that. And, uh, you know, I think I am also shocked that I wrote something that was actually helpful. You know, I'm so used to being uh, a poet where I'm like, you know, you're like, this will, maybe it'll reach two or three readers. And 
and then you also think, oh, maybe it'll reach readers a hundred years from now. But that, you know, the fact that it directly uh, reached out to and moved uh, readers was very gratifying and surprising. Um, I maybe answered questions, but I also, I, I th- again, I think I read that book and I ended up having more questions than answers for readers. And those are questions that I hope are answered by other 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 writers, by other Asian American writers, by other um, BIPOC writers. Um, I I want them, I want it to be a conversation, you know? So I just hope, and really, I think I'm not, this book is not the, I never intended this book to be the definitive book (laughs) on the Asian American experience. I wanted it to just kind of, start a conversation or continue a conversation really even and that um and I hope that other people will expand upon it um and question it and argue with it you know there are also I think there are a lot of people readers who had problems with the book too which is also fine and I hope in that way instead of uh Asian American identity being this flattened uh, label it becomes actually uh, more of like a lived um, identity that's full of all these different contradicting experiences and uh, it's already like that you know that's why I'm saying that I'm it's not even me starting the conversation it's me just continuing the conversation me it's just me saying okay what about this and also it's not just of course about uh, Asian American discourse it's about just this country uh, we are not ready. We're not ready. We're still not ready for like how complex relation, race relations are in this nation. I mean, we're still, we can't even accept uh, Black Lives Matter. I mean, like we can't even accept that the foundation of this country is based on slavery and that's how wealth was accumulated in this nation. We can't, so many of us can't even accept that, or we're just learning that right now. Uh, that should be basic. That should be just like basic to being an American. And we're like just starting to kind of grapple with that. And I think that uh, white Americans, I mean, I'm thinking specifically white Americans or white Americans who live in red states or whatever, if we're just starting to like reckon with that, I, I don't know when we'll really kind of reckon with just all the different people who live here. And, um, you know, I don't know. So. Something I really admire about your book is that it refuses to like limit itself to any, as you're saying, like it, it refuses to just be a book about Asian American experience or a woman's experience or a female artist experience or the experience of someone who grew up in California or you know, like there that there's an insistence on it on writing about all of that and and writing out of the questions that arise specifically from the confluence of everything that makes you the essayist on the page um which to me like the idea that anyone would expect that you or any essayist shouldn't be like writing the definitive book on anyone, you know, any massive population, um, that experience is is so wild to me. 
Um, and at the same time, what you've done in this book by insisting on the complexity of those identities as, as they live in you and as you live them is to really bring yourself onto the page in a way that poetry doesn't always demand and that your poetry in particular hasn't always done. And I'm wondering if that was nerve-wracking or exhilarating or frustrating or overdue for you? What, what did that feel like to be so, so, so complexly there on the page? Oh, it was very hard. I mean, I, as you said, I'm not, um, my poetry is not autobiographical. It's, um, I mean, I wrote, wrote poetry like a, a fiction writer. I, I invented lots of characters and persona and, uh, but I, you know, even before I decided to write essays, I, uh, I wanted to write an autobiographical book of poems. And I found that I couldn't really, uh, when I was writing um, the poems, it was like, you're still, you still have to build and develop a voice, even if it's like your voice, you know, even if it's from your life, you know, you're still developing, you're still creating a character. And I just didn't feel like myself in the character of the uh, speaker in the poem. And then I just turned to poem. I just turned to prose it, where it felt more comfortable because I think I had more space, uh, to allow for the nuance and contradictions of, of how I, of my ideas. I think, uh, of course, poetry has so much nuance, but I think there's something about the pressure of the line break that, uh, really kind of heightens uh, whatever you're trying to say uh, into something that's operatic. And I didn't want to speak in a way that was operatic. I wanted to just have a conversation and I wanted to talk instead of sing. So that was why I turned to prose. One of the tricky aspects of kind of writing about being Asian is that we're not just victims and we're not just villains. We're somewhere in between. You know, we're both, you know, we're both complicit, although I do think that word is being overused a lot. But I think we're also um, and we're and we're also victims. And it's like, how do you balance that? And how and I that was like, you know, when I was writing about the L.A. riots uh, and I was writing about like anti-blackness and Korean community, it was a really hard balance to strike. I was like, I don't want to say this Korean community is bad because they're racist. You know, I want to contextualize it in history of why they were there um, and how much they didn't know. But then I also didn't want to excuse them. You know, and I also didn't want to make myself as an outsider kind of describing the moment. I also want to make myself culpable. But then sometimes when you make yourself culpable, you just end up centering yourself and just writing about your own culpability. And then that gets kind of boring. And so it's like it's such it's such this kind of moral calculus of like of how making yourself vulnerable and um you know, just like making yourself vulnerable enough so that people will understand the complexity of being of being a in a racial group that it's 
not easy to it's it's not easy to kind of put in a box of you know hero villain 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 victim um we're not any of those you know um and i think actually that makes that makes it more interesting Uh, but it's also very challenging. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.